Warning, this podcast contains adult language, mature themes, and some pretty brutal talk about true crime scenes. So it is not intended for younger listeners or the more sensitive at heart. Sorry. You You have have been been warned. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the darkest little podcast on the internet that hovers somewhere between insanity and the screaming void, this spooky show. We are your guides and hosts of the damned. So let's get this train wreck a roll in with some introductions. I'm going to throw it over to Lauren. I'm Lauren. I'm a self-proclaimed horror movie expert. You can talk to me about almost any horror movie and I'll probably have something or another to say about it. Also, I'm probably currently hiding under your bed. Go check. I'll be there. I promise. She means it. That's true. I'm Vivian, and I'm a published horror author. Probably part demon. We're, jury's still out on that. Yeah. And uh, voted most likely to be the serial killer at the end of the movie. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jade. I'm scared of everything and not quite sure why I'm here. She's a baby. She's not lying either. She's terrified of everything. And I'm Quincy, the tech producer type person on this, and also tonight's Virgin Sacrifice. It's true. Yeah, we just told him that. He uh, was okay with it, I guess. Yeah, I didn't have anything else planned. Yeah, you know. nothing on TV. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Netflix kind of sucks now. Like, well, you know. You know. If, if, you know, third, fourth date if you're feeling it. Might as well. <laughs> so our podcast is going to be a little bi-weekly adventure into the darkest corners of the soul with sometimes a detour for some coffee, you know, or something. We'll focus on bringing you the finest in horror, true crime, and the paranormal, you know, to the legal limits that the law will allow us to. (laughs) Uh, If you like us, please subscribe to the podcast, follow us on uh, Patreon, on our Instagram, or our Twitter. And uh, without further ado, as a famous robot from a pretty famous sci-fi cartoon show once said, hold on to your dookie, it's about to get spooky. August presents us not only with back-to-school time and an acceptable time to go shopping for Halloween, or as I and we call them, normal house decorations. True facts. Yeah, right? I mean, like, I need I needs that stuff for my house. I haven't even gone this year yet. Can you imagine it's, what Michael's looks like? It. I sent you pictures. <laughs> I walked in and went, this was a mistake. <laughs> this goes my paycheck. My bank account started crying. And it's gone. And, but. Uh, but this August is also special, and this one heralds a pretty infamous anniversary. And we're not talking about the moon landing. That was that was in July. And uh, that's not this kind of podcast. So put your tinfoil hat away, but uh, keep it close by, because you might need it for a second later. We're going to get into some weird stuff. Yep. The anniversary we're talking about today happens to be the 50th anniversary of the Tate-LaBianca murders, otherwise known as the Manson Family Murders. So let's run down the case profile briefly. On August 8, 1969, Charles Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel went to the house at 10050 Cielo Drive. Manson instructed the women to do as Watson instructed them, which was to, quote, totally destroy everyone in it as gruesome as you can, unquote. The house had once belonged to record producer Terry Melcher and his then-girlfriend Candace Bergen. Manson had run afoul of Melcher during his short-lived and ill-fated music career. The Manson felt that Melcher had stumped him and sought vengeance. He, nor did the rest of the Manson family, realize that Melcher, at the urging of his mother Doris Day, had moved and rented out the house to director Roman Polanski and his wife, actor Sharon Tate. When the group arrived at the entrance to the property, Watson, who had been there before, climbed a telephone pole near the gate and cut the phone lines to the house. The unaware partygoers inside the home were officially cut off from help. It was now past midnight, August 9th, 1969. It's kind of a shit thing to do, is just walk up and like cut the fucking phone lines. This like just sounds like a horror movie, what we're talking about right now. It's just like, doesn't it sound like like the part where you're watching and the killers are lurking around and it's like, oh no, he's cutting the phone line. Oh no, get out of the house. That's <laughs> pretty much what it kind of kind of is playing out like. You're helpless now. Nowadays you have to cut the phone line and then crash your minivan into the local tower. That's true. Yeah, so you can't cut phone lines anymore if that, that you know, you'd have to crash the Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, everyone's like, that would just ruin, yeah. Cell phones have ruined horror movies, people. 
It's true. And despite what some of the other horror movies try to do with the whole cell phone thing, none of them are really all that good. But do we remember that movie from the 2000s? Uh, missed call with the flip phone oh, no. and Why everybody died call? when the number called. Why would you oh. bring up such a horrible thing? Just just don't Why answer the you... phone. Just, just... <laughs> let it go to voicemail. Let it go to voicemail. What's going to happen? No. Let's... I have like 50 unlistened to voicemails on my phone. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> the group moved their car to the bottom of a hill that led up to the estate, parked and walked back up towards the house. Hesitant to enter the front gate, feeling that it may be electrocuted or armed with an alarm of sorts, they instead climbed up an embankment to the right of the gate and entered the house grounds. It was then that the headlights approached from further back within the property, coming along the angled drive. Tex Watson ordered the three women to hide in the bushes while he stepped out to flag the driver down. Because, you know, it's a man's job. The driver of the car was Stephen Parent, 18 years old. He had been visiting the caretaker of the grounds, William Gerritsen, who lived in a separate guest house on the estate. Watson pointed a twenty-two caliber revolver at Parent when he stopped the car. The frightened teen begged for his life, telling Watson he wouldn't say anything about seeing him on the property. Watson then pulled out a knife and slashed at Parent, cutting him across the palm deep enough to sever tendons. He ripped Parent's watch off his wrist before leveling the pistol and shooting the youth four times in the chest and abdomen, killing him. I mean, talk about wrong place at wrong time. You're just visiting your buddy. And he just ripped his watch off. And stole his watch. <laughs> like, add insult to injury. God, it's not like you've got I'm going to stab then. you across the hand, steal your watch, and then I'm going to shoot you. Because why not? Because why not? Because fuck him, that's why, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So back back to the narrative. Mm. Watson then ordered the women to come out from hiding and help him push Parent's AMC ambassador further up the driveway towards the gate. While the women moved the car, Watson surveyed the front of the house, seeking an entry through an open window to the main home. He discovered an available window and cut the screen. It was at this time that he ordered Kasabian to keep lookout down by the main gate. Watson entered through the cut screen, then let Atkins and Krenwinkel in through the front door of the home. The party that Sharon Tate had been having with some of her closest friends had been winding down. In attendance was Jay Sebring, a famed hairdresser and former lover of Tate. Awkward. Mm. It must be really, really understanding of Polanski. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. Like, yeah, maybe he sure. just considered him not a threat. Maybe that's why. Maybe, like, yeah, you can have your former lover in here. I'm not home. No big deal. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> You're at home together by yourselves drinking. What could go wrong? Absolutely <laughs> nothing. He certainly didn't imagine this would go wrong. Right? But... <laughs> he did not imagine this at all. He's like, worse that happened, she cheats on me. Little did he know. <laughs> Little did he know. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, Wojciech Frakowski, who was Polanski's friend and aspiring screenwriter. Frakowski's girlfriend, Abigail Folger, heiress to the Folger Coffee Fortune, who was, was also at the home. Polanski was in Europe filming while Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant at the time, had been with him on his shoot. She had returned to L.A. three weeks early. Krakowski was asleep on the couch when the three assailants entered the house. He awoke upon hearing Watson whisper to Atkins. Watson noticed the movement and kicked Frakowski in the head. When Frakowski asked Watson who he was and what he was doing in the house, he infamously said, quote, I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work. I mean, that's, that is one heck of a line. It's very uh, devil's rejects. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> Under Watson's direction, Atkins located the other three occupants in the house and, with Krenwinkel's assistance, forced them into the living room. Watson began to tie Sebring and Tate together by the necks with rope he had brought, slinging rope over one of the high ceiling beams of the house like a makeshift noose. Sebring began to protest about the rough treatment of the heavily pregnant Tate, which prompted an angry Watson to shoot him. Yeah. Abigail Folger was led back to her bedroom for her purse, from which she gave the intruders $70, which, I know... Back then was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. Well, I don't even carry cash on me anymore. I mean, I mean, she attempted she attempted to pay him off. I mean, but you know, clearly that's not what they were, not what no. they were interested in. I'm just saying, Folger heiress, seventy dollars. <laughs> I mean, she didn't have like access to her fucking Swiss bank account, and like, let me just write you a check. <laughs> they would have asked for two forms of ID. You know, they would have. Yeah, they would have. They would have. Got to endorse the back of it. Yeah, <laughs> just not worth it. While Folger was in the back room, Watson pulled his knife, stabbed the injured and groaning, and stabbed the injured and groaning Sebring seven times. Rakowski had been bound by the hands with a simple towel. 
He managed to free himself because it was just a fucking towel and Mm. began to struggle with Atkins. She stabbed at his legs with the knife she had been using to guard him with as he fled. He fought his way out the front door and onto the porch, but Watson managed to catch up with him. He struck Rakowski over the head several times with the gun, breaking the right grip. Rakowski was stabbed repeatedly and shot twice. Around this time, Kasabian had come up the driveway, drawn by, quote, horrifying sounds. She arrived at the front door, and in a vain attempt to halt the massacre that she saw unfolding, she lied to Atkins, telling her that somebody was coming. Obviously, that didn't fucking fly and didn't go anywhere. Meanwhile, inside the house, Folger had escaped from Krenwinkel and fled out of a bedroom to the pool area. Folger was pursued all the way around to the front lawn by Krenwinkel, who caught her, stabbed her, and tackled her to the ground. She was then dealt the death blow by the waiting Watson and Krenwinkel, who together stabbed her 28 times. Her chilling last words were supposedly, quote, you can stop now, I'm already dead. Mm. I mean, okay, here's, here's, it, are the murderers kind of like a little Keystone Copish right now? I mean, they've had two people escape them. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not, this is not very well planned. This is obviously like a very, like, kind of just thrown together last minute, like, I tied him up with a towel. It seemed fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I found this random towel here and tied him up. Give me your money. I'm going to tie you up with a towel. Oh, How shit. Could... There she goes out the fucking patio door. How could he have possibly gotten out of my towel? My vicious towel trap. <laughs> it was secretly a hitchhiker's guide fan. Just thought the bath towel was all I needed. That's true. Oh, okay. Yeah, there that's we go. true. <laughs> Prykowski, who was still clinging to life, attempted to drag himself across the lawn in search of escape. Watson caught up with the injured man and in a violent flurry of attacks, finished him off with the knife. Rykowski was stabbed a total of 51 times. Inside the house, Tate pleaded to be let go, offering herself as a hostage in an effort to save her unborn child. Please, please don't kill me. I don't want to die. I just want to have my baby, she said. Quote, look, bitch, I don't care a thing about you. You're going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. Unquote, was the response that Susan Atkins gave to Tate's pleas. Atkins initially would testify in court to stabbing Tate herself, but would later, later recant this testimony, claiming that, in fact, Watson had done the deed. In a 1978 autobiography, Watson would claim that he stabbed Tate and Atkins never actually touched her. He would claim that he falsely claimed innocence at the time of the stabbing at the time of the trial because the prosecutors were really convinced that Atkins had been the one to do it. While the actual perpetrator is unclear, Atkins, Watson, or both, two facts are certain. Sharon Tate was stabbed 16 times while she cried for her mother. Manson's orders had been carried out, and earlier, before the group had left the Spahn Ranch, Manson told the women to, quote, leave a sign, something witchy. Using the towel that had bound Frykowski's hands, Atkins wrote the word pig on the house's front door in Tate's blood. And the towel makes a The towel makes a surprising guest appearance. <laughs> I mean, okay. The something witchy, really? Something witchy. Really, Charlie? Okay. And they came up with pig And they for came witchy. up with pig for witchy. <laughs> Not really sure how that translates to witchy, unless, you know, I don't know, you're a bacon witch? I don't fucking know. <laughs> Ooh, bacon. Ah, ah bacon. No, no bacon. Oh, no, no bacon, no. <laughs> the following night, a similar terror and madness would be wreaked against two more unsuspecting victims, Leno and Rosemary LaBianca at 3301 Waverly Drive. So here we're going to take a little break to kind of reflect on what we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And kind of lead us into the next night. But we'll talk about the first night first. So, I mean, I kind of gave you my feelings on it, where it was just kind of like, I'm picturing, I'd fucked up, but I'm picturing the Benny Hill theme going on while they're chasing these people <laughs> around the fucking house. <laughs> he got out of the towel! Oh no! <laughs> and then she's still going. <laughs> in my head all night you're welcome thanks for that (laughs) you're welcome you're welcome (laughs) and the interesting thing about this particular night is that manson wasn't present at all well funny you should mention that because as we dive into the next one he was actually present for the next one still probably didn't get his hands dirty well let's we'll get to that we'll get let's get into that let's 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 do it let's get into it let's get into it the home at 3301 Waverly Drive was Leno's childhood home. The pair, who had been married nine years, were on their way back from dropping Rosemary's daughter Susan at her apartment. On their way, they had stopped to get gas. Making a U-turn, they picked up a copy of the Los Angeles Herald Examiner from John Falcano's newsstand across the street. 
Leno had been a regular of Falcano's, and they stood talking for a few minutes about the news of the day, including the Tate murder that had occurred on the previous night. Rosemary seemed unnerved by the killings. He recalls that the LaBianca's leaving the newsstand about 1 or 2 a.m. Unlike the Tate murders the night before, Manson was actually present for these murders, albeit very briefly. He had been displeased by the panic of the victims at Celio Drive the night before. Red. He was mad that it was a fucking mess. He was mad that they <laughs> ran all over the place and just left a giant fucking disaster. But thanks for that. I guess I gotta show up. Like... So wait, the towel didn't work? No, the towel did not work. <laughs> did, did you use the towel? Did, did you use the towel? Just tell me. <laughs> Please tell me you used the towel. No, we had to use one of their own because we forgot God ours. damn it! <laughs> God damn it. I'm just gonna show up tomorrow night. It's, it's fine. What it's do not... I pay you people for? You, you know our towels are stronger. <laughs> you want something right, you gotta do it yourself. Or don't, in this case. Manson accompanied Leslie Van Houten, Steve Clem Grogan, and the four family members from the previous night to show them how to do it. He didn't Use the do towel it. the right way. <laughs> Spoiler alert. He didn't show them how to do it right. Uh... Manson and Tex Watson were the first to enter the house. They subdued their sleeping couple by promising them that no harm would come to them if they complied with their attacker's commands. They were only there to rob them. Liar! 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 Pants are on fire! (laughs) With Rosemary and Leno in the living room, pillowcases over their heads held in place by lamp cords, Manson exited the house. Shocker. He instructed the girls waiting in the car outside, Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten, to enter the house and murder the inhabitants. He saw towels, so it was fine. Yeah, he was like, there's fine. towels here. We're good. <laughs> there's towels. I don't need to be here We're then. good. The women went inside and went to the kitchen in search of weapons. Watson then sent the women from the kitchen to the bedroom where Rosemary had been relocated. Watson returned to the living room and stood watch over Leno. Leno LaBianca seemed hesitant to believe the promise of these scraggly, dirty intruders. Fucking dirty ass hippies. I.e. hippies. He began to struggle with Watson, who promptly stabbed him in the throat with a chrome-plated bayonet. <laughs> let's let's take a little sidebar off on here. Uh, I think you mentioned, who the fuck has a bayonet laying around? <laughs> I like, mean, I'm what? just saying, if I'm going to murder somebody, a bayonet doesn't seem like, one, the most conspicuous weapon, nor the most effective. No. Okay, here, well, here's the thing, too. It also sounds like a clue weapon. <laughs> it sounds like something from the game Clue. It ooh, happened in the library ooh, with the bayonet. The, the rope, the candlestick, the bayonet. <laughs> in the living room with the towel and the... <laughs> the he was just an the... avid Civil War reenactor. Was what just, it was. Yeah, it was just, they, they love to reenact them battles up there. Fredericksburg, all fucking day. Them battles. All day. Them battles on back home. <laughs> Didn't you mention that it was because Tex was complaining the night before? Yeah, apparently Tex had bitched to Charlie the night bef- about the weapons accessible the night before, because, I mean, he broke the gun and they had knives and stuff but i guess and the rope but that's pretty much it so i guess he was complaining to charlie about the uh lack of amazing weaponry and apparently charlie just looked around and went bayonet here you go <laughs> it's not fun enough <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't as stabby as i wanted oh. <laughs> so getting back to the narrative here don't stab me anymore leno pleaded then in an eerie echo of Abigail Folger's last words, he said, quote, I'm dead. I'm dead. What is with these people as they're dying, proclaiming that they're dying? I'm dead. I mean, I, mean, I guess. <laughs> last words are last words, I suppose. Have you played the uh, not-so-new-anymore-but-Friday-the-13th game? Of course no. not. Have okay. you met me? Yeah. <laughs> She's afraid of everything. There's Hi. actually a char- there's actually moments where the characters, if you're playing Jason and you start killing them, start screaming, he's killing me. He's killing me! <laughs> that's what I- <laughs> no shit, Sherlock, who's listening to you? <laughs> that's, what, that's what I screamed the last time I had to wait at the DMV. He's it- killing me! I do believe it's actually a quote pulled from one of the movies, too. I think at some point someone in the movie gets killed and they oh, just start sure. screaming that they're being killed. I mean, I guess if you're being murdered at that point, like, what have you got to lose? Yeah, true. It's funny, when I was doing the whole... Goratorium Fright Dome thing. They used to tell us all the time if we screamed help me, they were gonna yell at us. We're not allowed to say something as simple as help me because help me sucks. So can you imagine if I had been like, okay, fine, I won't say help me, but he's killing me. Well, don't they also say like if you're getting attacked or something like that, not to scream help me because people don't listen. So you have to scream like fire. Yeah, fire. But people actually pay attention, mm-hmm. which is fucked up royal says a lot about our world today in the 90s i would have yelled blue uh blue light special how about <laughs> what about what about blue man group oh out here that would send people running away <laughs> ah, 
they just they just send them. No, in the nineties, all you have to do is go. Are those the Spice Girls? <laughs> they were huge. That would attract people that couldn't help you in your fight. Right. Okay. Yeah. Good point. People that are walking around in the pumps and. Let's I'm just imagining that. what was going through like Abigail Folger and Watson's mind, like as he's saying, "I'm dead. I'm dead." Like, I sure as fuck hope so. I stabbed you in the throat <laughs> with a bayonet. Like, that's kind of the point here. Can you mm-hmm. go faster? Oh, well, what then I'm I guess my for. work here is done. I guess I'm done now. Guess I get a gold star from Charlie. So is it... Okay, so back in the bedroom, Rosemary undoubtedly heard the struggle between Watson and her husband, mm-hmm. and she began to fight back against Van Houten and Krenwinkle, swinging the lamp that she had tied <laughs> that they had tied around her neck at her attackers. Can I stop for a second and say how fucking baller this is? Please do. <laughs> I mean, this woman is standing there with... You know, vicious hippies with knives pointed at her, and she is swinging a lamp like she's swinging her fucking dick around. <laughs> you ain't gonna catch me. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I only wish it had worked. I wish she had caught one of them with it. Just clocked him right up in the head. Absolute badass human being. What here. a treasure. Also, that visual. I mean, that's a great visual. That is a great visual. Just the, the helicoptering the fucking lamp around. <laughs> Don't you ain't gonna catch me, bitch. Not today. Oh, not, not today. Say, Manson family. Not today. So Krenwinkle was apparently pissed off by the victim swinging a lamp at her. As one would be. I guess. And threatened Rosemary with one of the knives that they'd retrieve from the kitchen. Rosemary began pleading for her life, saying they could have anything they wanted in the house and she wouldn't call the police. The mentioning of the police seemed to trigger an already agitated Van Houten, who held Rosemary down while Patricia Krenwinkel stabbed her in the neck. It was probably actually the fact that they wanted the lamp she just broke. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it was an Ikea lamp. Maybe it was a really nice lamp. Oh, that's a really nice lamp. But in the frenzy, the knife bent. What kind of knife is this? I think it's a, probably a steak knife. Get, yeah, you're you know stabbing what? flush, not like a metal Wait, table. It hit, How maybe, does it bend? Well, maybe it hit bone. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, they're they're obviously not surgeons. They are just kind of stabbing wildly at this point. They I mean, probably like. Right. That's why. They hit bone and stuff, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. The women called for Watson to help. He came into the bedroom and stabbed Rosemary a few times with the bayonet. You know. Just to accentuate the point. Just to accentuate the point that he's the one that holds the bayonet. Van Houten recalled in later testimony that Watson gave her a knife as well. She said, quote, I stabbed Miss LaBianca in her lower torso. I knew I needed to do something. Van Houten stabbed Rosemary in the back and in the exposed buttocks 16 times. So not only was she stabbed in the neck, not only was she stabbed in her torso, she was stabbed in her butt. She was stabbed in the ass. (laughs) And I'd like to say for the record that that is probably how I would die. Mouthing off to the wrong person. Just mouthing off to the wrong person. (laughs) Like, it's it's the classic noir, like, kind of, like, you know, detective rolls up, throws the sheet back off my body and goes, I stabbed another one, eh? (laughs) I hate hate this city. I hate this fucking city. We have to catch this madman before he stabs another you know, in the ass. The mad ass stabber. <laughs> a mad ass slinging. stabber. The ass slinging. <laughs> okay. Watson reportedly was instructed to make certain that each family member had an equal role in the killing. Except for him, apparently. Except, Except for Charlie. For him, Except for Charlie. Not the everyone else needs blood on their hands, but not me. Watson was like, Oh, well, okay, you want to deal the death blow? And he was like, What, me? Nah, 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 nah. (laughs) At the end of the bloody struggle, Rosemary LaBianca had been stabbed a total of 41 times, which, let me just throw it out there, is 40 more times than you need to stab somebody. true. It takes one stab to kill somebody. One well-placed stab. One well-placed stab. Using the blood from their victims, just like they had at the Tate murders, they wrote Rise and Death to Pigs on the walls, I guess in the hopes of starting that race war that they were so jonesing about right perhaps most famously they misspelled the words helter skelter on the refrigerator door which was a song from the beatles white album that manson was obsessed with he was obsessed with the whole album but we'll get into that a little later krenwinkle did most of the writing she punctured leno 14 times with an ivory handled carving fork which she left sticking out of his stomach she also left a steak knife jutting from his throat i mean so there we go steak knife i mean really I mean, really. I mean, really. Just let's use all your cutlery. I mean, not only are you breaking into these people's houses and killing them, you're using all of their good cutlery. Don't let her use the good china. (laughs) (laughs) Anything but that. 
The killer showered Petla Bianca's dogs and then left. Worst card dogs ever. I mean, they had to have been like little little yappy Pomeranian type dogs. Just imagining where they were at this time. Like they're just chilling in their dog room because these people are rich and I'm sure they have a dog room. Right. Just sleeping and they walk out and they're like, all right, master, it's time for my meal. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but you're still alive and walking around. Are you going to feed me? (laughs) These dogs ain't loyal. Yeah, they ain't loyal. Mm Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Manson, who had been outside during the killings, got in the car with getaway driver Linda Kasabian. He handed her Rosemary's wallet and told her to drop it on the sidewalk as soon as they arrived at a black neighborhood. According to the prosecutors, Manson wanted a black person to find the wallet and use the credit cards so the police would think that they found the real killer. Shady. Apparently the only thing that Charlie was really good at was being racist. Exactly. He wanted to start this big race war. He figured that... Black people were more powerful than white people and therefore would win, but didn't know what to do with the power. So that's when they would rise up and kind of take over this new world, I guess, is the way that I read it. Yeah, that's supposedly what Helter Skelter, or at least that's what he thought it meant. Mm -hmm. The song is actually about a roller coaster. So take that, fucker. (laughs) Fun fact, it's about a roller coaster. (laughs) Fun fact. Not about murder at all. <laughs> not about being a giant racist. Not even, not even close. It's about a roller coaster. No joke. But on the way, there was a change of plans. Manson had Kasabian pull into a gas station in Silmar, 20 miles northwest of the La Bianca home. He asked her to leave it in the women's restroom. But she didn't just leave it, though. Instead, she hid it in the toilet tank. The wallet that wouldn't be found for another four months because it was hidden in a toilet tank. So much, so much for, you know, evidence, I guess. That was so much for the somebody finding it using the credit cards. I don't think anybody's going fishing in toilet tanks looking for stuff. Exactly. You had one job. You had one job. Did he get cold feet on the whole race war thing? Did he realize that it was too much pressure? Like, why did he change his mind? That's a good question. I don't, I'm, I'm not really sure why. Maybe he decided to, maybe he thought somebody was going to go into the bathroom. Maybe he thought the bathroom was a quicker more trafficked spot like maybe it's going to be busier and has a better chance to be found in a bathroom of course not thinking that she's hiding it in the toilet tank either like someone like, would be like oh a wallet if somebody just left it on some candy. you know yeah a wallet in a public <laughs> restroom you know at a gas station bathroom just toss a wallet on the counter and walk out yeah chances are pretty good gas station bathrooms are busy so somebody's gonna walk out with it pretty pretty quickly rather than on the sidewalk but uh mm-hmm. didn't didn't plan for the whole toilet tank hiding fiasco toilet tank gate 69 <laughs> 69 <laughs> the next day the LaBianca children discovered the dead bodies of their parents which is pretty shitty mm-hmm. Leno was on the living room floor with a bloody pillowcase covering his head a cord was tied around his neck and his hands were tied behind his back with a leather strap he'd been t- stabbed a total of 12 times with the bayonet one of the perpetrators had also carved the word war on Leno's exposed abdomen Rosemary was on the bedroom floor wearing one of her favorite blue and white striped dresses which was bunched up over her head exposing her naked body so while that wraps up the fact rundown of the murders that occurred about 50 years ago, so let's delve into some other theories and facts that we're going to talk about the Manson family values and all that fun shit. Uh, so let's go to the big board of creepy facts that you are dying to know. Mm-hmm. Starting with so Carissa. we're gonna yeah we're gonna start with Jade over Jade. here with uh, the Scientology angle, which is a really interesting angle. It it really is. Uh, we all know that Scientology is batshit crazy oh well yes Um, we do yes we do sorry tom cruise sorry not sorry not Not at all i'm just sorry enough not to get sued i'm still gonna go watch maverick he really is um just fun fact before we delve into this elron hubbard was so insane that when he was on his boat doing his little scavenger um surveillance situation um he attacked a mexican oil rig and almost got us into a war with mexico oh well how nice of you, Elron. Poor forward thinking. Thanks you know. for that. Thanks, thanks for that. Failed science fiction writing asshole. <laughs> um, so Manson's uh, participation in Scientology is brought up from a bunch of sources. Uh, Jeff Gwynn talks about it in his book, Manson, The Life and Times. Uh, New York Times wrote an article about it in 1969. Um, and Paulette Cooper's The Scandal of Scientology also brings reference to it. Um, and Scientology's own documents um, that the FBI seized in 77 um, also mention 
Manson and how Scientology was concerned um, about his activities and how those would reflect on them. Because, you know, their activities are crazy enough. They don't need a don't psychopath need race war. <laughs> they don't need help. Um, also, apparently, I guess one of his cellmates, and you could probably confirm this about the things you've been looking at, one of his cellmates in prison was a high-level person in Scientology who was the one who would do audits. I guess with Charlie and uh, up to the point that I guess Manson got bored and was just kind of kind of done with it. Well, so Scientology kind of they like to say that uh, Mr. Raymer um, did not have like any clearance to do any of this. Um, But that's right. While Charlie was in McNeil uh, Island Penitentiary, he received 150 hours um, of auditing from Lafayette Raymer, whose real name is Laner Raymer. I would, have, I would have changed it too because that so sounds like a porn name. Lainer Raymer. <laughs> Just saying, if your parents name you with a rhyming name, they hate you. They do, and you probably <laughs> should change it. I mean, you were pr- maybe you were an asshole baby. I don't know. Yeah, maybe there's a lot of babies that are assholes. <laughs> so like, you know what? I'm gonna fix you. Fix you, baby. <laughs> I'm gonna fix you good. I'm gonna fix you good, baby. Rhyming name. <laughs> um, but during this auditing, he exposed and uh, kind of taught Manson um, with the CCH um, processes, which are the control communication having this processes, um, which are supposed to be what you go through to um, overcome being controlled by other people, um, which let's break these down for a second because... I would like your opinion on whether these would help you to not be controlled by okay. people. Okay. Uh, step one, you have two people. You sit facing each other um, and you say, give me that hand over and over and over. I already don't like this. No, I'm very uncomfortable with this. Also, <laughs> what hand? My Man, hand? Mine? <laughs> A hand? Yeah. I'm... Severed hand? Um... <laughs> Step two uh, for uh, CCH is looking at the wall, walking to the wall, touching the wall, turning around, and repeating. You know what the definition of insanity is? (laughs) What is it? (laughs) This. It's repeating the same thing over and over and over again, expecting Scientology. It's talking to to walls and object permanence in Scientology. (laughs) Claire Heedy actually... um, in her, I think she, in her book and in a couple documentaries, um, has talked about how when she was receiving auditing, they had her literally screaming at an ashtray and telling an ashtray to, like, stand up, sit down, smile, all these weird things. All things that an ashtray cannot do. (laughs) This all seems sane to you guys, right? Yeah. Totally 100% sane. Scream at inanimate objects, touch walls, let's make a church, why not? (laughs) The Church of Screaming at Ashes. Church of the Church of Spaceship Beep Boop. <laughs> um, and then level three was hand space mimicry, and uh, level four was book mimicry, which was basically um, doing the same repetitive motion on a book over and over and over again because slamming it on someone's dick. Yes, over and <laughs> over and over and over. And over. Ron Hubbard's dick. <laughs> Here, hold still. And another. And another. (laughs) Um, But it's interesting that, like, they had this and that he went through this and that the whole thing was to keep from being controlled. Um, Because Hubbard even had said at one point, the only way to control people is to lie to them. Which Manson was pretty good at. Yeah. He was good at telling people what they wanted to hear. Absolutely. Absolute master manipulator. Just like, well, any cult leader is, is good at, you know, there's people out there that want to hear things from an authority figure and need to be told what to think, basically, because they don't have the, I guess, the, the wherewithal, not the wherewithal, but they don't have the the deci- deciding factors to maybe think, make decisions on their own, so they like to look for an authority figure to make those decisions for them, you know. <laughs> mama look pretty. Mama look pretty. <laughs> did, did, did I do good, mama? <laughs> And he was really good at that. He was really, you know, really good at the uh, the manipulating of people and and uh, getting them to obviously do his bidding. I mean, you have to be pretty 
convincing to get people to murder strangers for you. Right, like, I can't just walk to somebody on the street and be like, hey, murder that guy right next to you. They would punch you in the, sh- in the stomach and kick you in the shins and call you a fuckface and leave. <laughs> Very swiftly walk away from me. Don't turn around, don't turn around, don't she's, turn around. She's still there, she's still there. Don't, oh, don't Lord, she's coming for oh, me. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, <laughs> here she <laughs> comes. Um, so there were some side murders, I guess, that had happened that have been supposedly tied into Manson. Or they've never been able to prove it for sure. But there are the Sharp and Gall murders. Um, they were found murdered in an alleyway on November 7th, 1969, which wasn't too far from where the Tate-LaBianca murders were committed. And uh, it was extreme overkill stabbing, which is why they kind of thought it was tied to Manson. Um, but they were, the two victims were involved with a splinter group of Scientology, Interesting. known as the Process Church of the Final Judgment, <laughs> which sounds pretty culty to me. <laughs> sounds Alarming. Um, Manson himself, I guess, was connected to the process, borrowing from some of their ideology from his own, from his own cult, um, and he maintained contact with them after his conviction. Um, <clears throat> which, like you were saying, Manson was all about manipulation. Um, I don't know how many people knew this, but he was a pimp at one point, mm-hmm. um, and he had learned how to be a pimp from other pimps. Um, and one of the things that they told him was that you need to be the person for your girls. So you need to build them up, convince them that you're the only one that loves them, that you're the only one that's there for them, tell them they're God, all this other stuff. Like, you're going to protect them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he, so basically from that point on, he was all about manipulation when he was, um... In Terminal Island in 57 and 58, he did a Dale Carnegie How to Win Friends and Influence People course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he also, while in McNeil, um, studied black and white magic and hypnotism. So he was all about the manipulation. Um, and one of the parts in uh, The Essential Tenets for Scientology is saying you are an immortal spiritual being your experience extends well beyond a single lifetime and your capabilities are unlimited even if not presently realized furthermore man is basically good he is seeking to survive and his survival depends upon himself and his fellows and his attainments of brotherhood with the universe um so he used this uh with um his prostitutes because they had terrible self-images um so he would basically tell them you know you are an immortal being your past is not going to hold you back. You are going to achieve great things, all of this stuff. It really helps to be able to do that with basically what is a blank slate. Being a prostitute, they don't really have the greatest self-worth. So it also helps, helps when they're 14. It also and helps when they're 14. 14. And a lot of acid helps too. Yeah. Um, so while he was in jail, uh, he met up with Alvin Creepy Carpus, which... Creepy. I mean, the nickname Creepy. Creepy. <laughs> Fucking golden. <laughs> Fucking golden. I want to know what he did creepy. to earn that nickname. <laughs> it was his smile. Oh. And he said he had a really creepy smile. So, hence the nickname Creepy. What a subtle way of being creepy. like, you have effed up teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Your name is Creepy. You want to you wanna help me out with some stuff? <laughs> hey, hey, Crappy. <laughs> <laughs> Spoopy. <laughs> Don't call me that. Call me Crappy. Call me Crappy. My name is Crappy. My name is Crappy, motherfucker. <laughs> um, but Charlie ended up going to him for guitar lessons, which uh, Lauren will get into later. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he had said that Charlie figured Scientology would enable him to, quote, do anything or be anything. Um, and then later when Manson met Phil Kaufman, um, <clears throat> He had used Carnegie's course to learn how to make strangers open up to him. Um, But when he talked with Phil Kaufman and he talked about Scientology, he never really talked as though he was a real believer of it. Um, He basically just pick and choose like aspects of Scientology that he wanted um, to for his own like nefarious purposes, which sound familiar. (laughs) Sounds a little familiar to me. Voldemort. Yes. (laughs) What? Yes. <laughs> he must not be named. named. <laughs> Terrible, but great things. <laughs> Terrible, but great. 
Um, but when he got out and he started The Hate, it was basically an amalgamation of Beatles song lyrics, biblical passages, Scientology, and the Dale Carnegie technique of saying everything dramatically. Ooh. Oh, do that again. I, I think I want to do everything you say just because you said that. <laughs> everything dramatically. dramatically. <laughs> Ding, catchphrase. <laughs> um, but yeah. That was essentially it. There was a meme that went around that Charlie said that Scientology was too crazy for him, but it's not really, there's nothing that really proves that he ever said this. Um, And Tony Ortega, who uh, runs the underground bunker and reports a lot on Scientology, uh, had even said that perhaps Scientology wasn't crazy enough for Manson. Um, or he just got what he wanted out of it. Yeah. Like, he got mm-hmm. the tools that he needed to do what he wanted to do to, you know, manipulate people. And he's like, oh, I got these useful things that I've learned. See ya. And let's be honest, he was <laughs> too broke to be in Scientology. That's true. Yeah. Um, they do require a lot of lot, money. A lot of money. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Scientology hates that Manson um, is associated with them. I'm sure that is for... not a fun association for them at all. <laughs> Good reason. Um, and... There was a fun thing about when Paulette Cooper's book came out, um, and they mentioned uh, Manson. The only gripe they had with it, which is strange for Scientology, is that Manson was brought up. Which they usually bring up a lot of gripes. Anyone anyone talks bad about them, yeah. But they were just like Manson. No, that overshadows <laughs> you everything. The line. That that's nope, nope. Go back. Nope, go back. Huh? <laughs> 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 Word. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's not like they need Manson to. To really let everybody know that they're completely insane. I mean, true. Yeah. Zeno does that for them. True. True facts. So then, since we talked about drugs a little bit, and obviously the things he learned from Scientology and the things he learned from Dale Carnegie were a big, you know, help with his, you know, mind washing and brainwashing kit. Um, He wouldn't have been anywhere without acid, for sure. Um, Hallucinate, healthy dose of hallucinogens. Um, on the reg, pretty much, is uh, how he kind of helped keep people in control. Uh, he also didn't allow any watches, uh, clocks, or calendars at the Spawn Ranch compound. Is that why he took the kid's watch from the car? Maybe. Maybe he just really wanted one. He's like, I, I just haven't had one of these minutes. for years. I've needed to know the time for two years. Oh my gosh, it's, that's horrifyingly heartbreaking, actually. <laughs> it's fucking Friday. I didn't even know. Oh, what? <laughs> This one has a built-in calendar. Yeah. Did they add extra days? Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> he uh, he also didn't allow eyeglasses at the Spawn Ranch compound. He didn't allow people to wear glasses. We just were blind trying just... to see. <laughs> well, maybe he didn't want them to see too good, because maybe they'd be like, oh, no, that shit's crazy. Oh, no. What? what? <laughs> oh, no. Nah. Oh, what? Oh, no. No. They'd look too close at his face, and that would be the problem. <laughs> oh. Oh, Lord. Oh, Okay. We're we can't do hemoglobin. This. Oh my goodness, we can't do this. <laughs> for for <laughs> clarification, three of the four of us are wearing glasses. Yeah, we not. we just trying to see. Uh, apparently, he that was. I think that was part of the control thing, where it was like I can control the minor things you do in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, the acid was obviously a big a big help. Um, there's a theory behind that that we'll get into, and it's a little bit tinfoil hat time. That's why I told you to keep it close by. You didn't crush it, did you? You didn't squash it or put it around a piece of pizza, did you? I've got a baked potato on mine. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> well, as long as it's a potato, it's fine. It's a fine. good potato. Add some sour cream. I'm allergic. But not, you're not eating the potato. <laughs> it's not your, it's it's not his, your potato. It's his potato. So then I don't get to partake in the potato? No. Oh. He said it was in his hat. <laughs> Like I wasn't going to eat the potato out of his hat. <sighs> Catchphrase. <laughs> Catchphrase. <laughs> Catchphrase. Ding, ding. Put that um, on a t-shirt. <laughs> right? Put that on a t-shirt. Like I said I was going to eat the potato out of his hat. <laughs> um, a popular conspiracy theory holds that Manson's drugs were being supplied by the CIA. Um, that's one of the, one of the theor- conspiracies. I said it was a tinfoil hat time. Did I or did I not? <laughs> Twist it into some little antennas there and get some yourself some real good reception. Put a little Hershey kiss on top. <laughs> he, uh, that Manson himself was a pro- uh, project of the infamous MK Ultra program, which was designed to produce mind-controlled assassins. There's a fantastic documentary on it on Netflix, which I don't know if it's still on there, but it's called Wormwood. 
and it's about it's about MK Ultra, which was a for real project, which was something the CIA was doing in the sixties, and they would dose the military and their own agents, um, trying to basically figure out how they could get use LSD and hallucinogens to try to create like a super soldier or try to create somebody that would kill like with you know no remorse and things like that. So they think that the CIA was distributing drugs to the Manson family um, to discredit the counterculture movement. Oh, okay. I was gonna so say, like... to make hippie communes kind of seem dangerous, like, ooh, look at what these people got up to. Look at how dangerous they are. They went and stabbed people because they did acid. I'm pretty sure it was because they were crazy before that, but like, you know, hey. Just throwing that little bit out there. But that was their, uh, to the CIA's whole basis behind this was to discredit the the hippies and the anti-war movement um as well as to deepen their control of the american mind in general so that's I mean, the theory behind the mk ultra the mk ultra thing if that's true it kind of worked i mean yeah. i guess and it sounds tinfoil hat at first like don't get me wrong the cia was giving them mind-altering chemicals bah. but then like when you actually like look at it you go yeah, that does sound like something they'd fucking do. <laughs> like, I've like, heard worse theories. I've heard worse theories, and I've also heard, you know, that's a pretty realistic thing that the CIA might may or may not have been, been involved in, especially if you're pretty familiar with anything the CIA has done or currently does. Uh, shadow ops kind of shit, so. Unabomber. No, oh, that too. <laughs> that too. Yeah, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be the first time they got their hands dirty, you know, and all that, so. But, uh, disclaimer, please don't assassinate us, CIA. Please. I say bring it. <laughs> I have a dog who depends on me. They they, they don't focus on uh, the homelands anyways. They're across the sea. Yeah, they're they're doing they're doing stuff. That's they're fine. doing things. I guess we're safe. So, FBI now. Yeah. Oh, we're sorry. We said well, nothing. We said nothing about you. You're fine. You're amazing. Yeah. If you come after us, we know you're just picking fights. We know you're starting a fight now. So there's another conspiracy theory out there in in the depths of the of the webs, as they say. Or is that, I don't know, maybe some people say. Um, <laughs> that people Manson say was part of a nationwide network of Satan-worshipping assassins for hire. Ooh. We're... I mean, that sounds like the basis of a pretty badass fucking TV show. I was about to say, like, where can I get the rights to this television <laughs> show? Where's the chase, and how can I cut to it? <laughs> <laughs> this satanic murder network, ding, catchphrase. Satanic murder network. Operating primarily in California, New York, and Texas was supposedly also behind Son of Sam. Um, um, as well as Helter Skelter Crimes and the Mansons and various other murders of the time with the, a ritualistic kind of bent to them. Mm-hmm. Um, they hired themselves out to drug dealers and other illegal power brokers, but they didn't just get money out of it, but access to sacrificial victims was kind of the, the going theory. That not only did they get paid, but they also got paid in the blood of virgins. <laughs> <laughs> um, the family's also supposedly... Uh, been fingered basically that they can't really prove it because there's not uh enough forensic evidence into some of these crimes that they're theorized as uh, being responsible for up to 35 murders just they can't be proven yeah there were a lot of them that they found that were like they thought it was probably or by the time they found out about these other victims they had already been clipped for the tate labianca and they were already getting the death penalty at the time which then obviously got overruled and uh, turn into life in prison. I mean, how many other people run around with fucking bayonets? I mean, that's true. <laughs> but there were a lot of, I guess, other bodies found along Mulholland Drive and in the hills that had been stabbed a bunch of times. That, again, back in the 60s, they didn't have that kind of forensic evidence to link it back to the Manson family, but they're generally thought that they had a hand in a, up to 35 murders. Well, that, and every time someone mentions Mulholland Drive, everyone just shudders. <laughs> David Lynch. David Lynch. I know there's a few people listening to that podcast that's going to have a problem with that. Oh, no. Oh, no. I know. Um, <laughs> so, there was, so there was that. There was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of weird murders attached to it. One of them was the, one of the attorneys um, in the case. He actually had been maintained by Manson, and then Manson fired him because he wanted to represent himself, because that seems like a sane thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, he saw the guy, yeah, he saw the guy show up, I guess, in court, so the guy ended up representing another one of the Manson family, and as soon as Charlie saw him, I guess he just, like, bugfuck lost his shit and said, mm-hmm. I don't want to see you in this courtroom ever again. And then they took, like, a 10-day recess, where they were took a 10-day recess to break for trial. He went camping with his family and went missing, and then his body wasn't found until four months later. What is this four-month conspiracy? Four months. 
Four months later, his body was found, like, away from his family, off the trail. They don't really know what happened. It's theorized that Squeaky Frome, who was still out of prison, this is before she attempted to assassinate Gerald Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Before before that, that she, they think that basically, because Charlie still had a pretty strong hold on his followers while he was, even while he was in jail and he was in prison, that, that they would still go do these things for him. So, mm-hmm. because Charlie saw it and did not like it, somebody went and took care of it. Jimmy, didn't he also threaten the judge as well? He did. He did threaten the judge. He basically threatened everybody. I, I mean, a quote here in my notes. All right. Let's get to some some quotes. In the name of Christian justice, someone should cut your head off. That was spoken to uh, Judge Charles H. Older during his trial. I mean, that's pretty specific. Very. That's very specific. <laughs> someone should cut your fucking head off with a bayonet. In the, the name part that of they didn't leave Christian out. justice <laughs> the they and bayonets. And bayonets. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, the, fam- the other famous thing about... Charlie Manson is his whole failed music career, which I will let Lauren, we're going to dovetail right into that right now. Ooh, definitely. And like I said, I've got my notes here. So there is a very weird connection between Manson and the Beatles, other than the fact that he believed the White Album was sending him secret messages. Again, very sane. Very, very sane. A very, very sane man, Manson. (laughs) Uh... Yeah, Roman Polanski filmed his movie Rosemary's Baby at the Dakota, which is where famed Beatle John Lennon was shot and killed by Mark David Chapman, who's a rabid fan of his. Uh, being that Manson was such a huge fan of the Beatles, it was just a very, very strange that coincidence. Is, that is weird. That is weird for sure. I also heard uh, a theory going as well that uh, Anton Zander LaVey, who was the head of the Church of Satan, mm-hmm. was a, um, a an advisor on the film, but he was not credited on Rosemary's Baby, and that uh, Susan Atkins had been a follower of uh, Xander LaVey. Oh, okay. Well, that's an interesting Interesting one satanic well. church tie-in. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, also, Rosemary's Baby, the, the subject matter's interesting as well. It's about devil basically impregnating a woman, is the short answer. It's, it, spoiler alert! <laughs> spoiler it's, alert! It's called Rosemary's Baby. It's been 40 years. I think we're past the spoiler alert thing. Are we, though? Because I feel like Are someone we? in the depths of the internet is like, what? I was planning on watching that tomorrow. Oh. I had no idea. Sorry about it. I, I spoiled <laughs> Rosemary's Baby for Sorry I spoiled a movie for you that was made in like 1968. I mean, that's that literally has the title Rosemary's Baby. Right. Yeah, the title is Rosemary's Baby. And spoiler alert, Rosemary's Baby is not a normal child. We'll just say that It much. has little hoofy kids. <laughs> Also, another kind of interesting fact uh, that Jade mentioned earlier, uh, he took guitar lessons from Alvin Creepy Carpus, who is the leader of the Barker Carpus gang, uh, named Creepy because of his smile, like we mentioned before. So that kind of brings up something funny, you know, like you're going to go up to somebody whose name is Creepy and start asking them for guitar lessons, like, hey, Creepy. Excuse me, excuse me, it's crappy. Oh, I'm sorry, it's crappy. <laughs> excuse it's me, my, now, my name is now pronounced crepe. It is now pronounced crepe. <laughs> crepe. <laughs> my name is Alvin Crepe. But one of the things that we didn't really get into was that uh, crepe <laughs> took pity on Manson, probably because if you're familiar with the, uh, the Barker Carpus gang, they also had the influence of Ma Barker, who oh, yeah. wasn't... It, it's kind of out... It's up in the air on whether or not she was really involved in things. It's generally perceived that she wasn't. She was just there. They basically, whenever they were discussing things gang-related, they would send her out of the room. But everybody had such an intense respect and an intense love for that woman. And she took care of them. She fed them. She housed them. Moved with them from place to place when they were on the lamb. Mint jelly. Call me mint jelly because I'm (laughs) on on the the lamb. Uh, so he always had that mother figure in his life where Charles Manson definitely didn't. His mom rejected him and forced him to live on the streets. So he had no name on his birth certificate. Literally. She called him no name. Yeah. No name Manson. (laughs) I think she also, I heard, I want to say it was on last podcast on the left, uh, where she traded him to the bartender for for some alcohol. For beer. For a pitcher of beer. Yeah. Oh, I heard that one, too. Just forced him to live on the streets, which is absolutely heart-wrenching, especially for somebody who had that maternal figure in his life, whether it was blood-related or not. Still, I'm sure his heart went out to him, and he said, let me find my quote here. 
felt bad for Manson upon learning about his upbringing, said somebody had to help him, basically. He also noted that while Manson was a bit of a runt and that he didn't seem like the type of person that belonged in prison as he was very meek and soft-spoken, he was definitely an experienced manipulator of others. And he said that there were times he felt manipulated by Manson, even in situations that didn't call for it, almost like he was practicing. <laughs> gotta get that, you know, brainwashing time in. Clock those hours. <laughs> oh, gotta get that brainwashing time in. Right after the yard. Right after exercise, the yard, brainwashing time, mm-hmm. macrame. <laughs> That's about all that I have on it, so I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to Quincy. Okay, so all I have really here is a, a recent Times Magazine article. And this is just kind of the fact that Tool, right up till his death, Manson was sticking with the fact that he didn't actually have anything to do with uh, Tate's and Folger's death. The article basically breaks down that he shot a uh, drug dealer uh, early on that was um, he believed to have died from the gunshot wound uh, the, uh, to the stomach and that the gentleman was black. And so therefore he wanted to start this uh, race war or start these string of murders to kind of cover it up and make it look like something bigger was going on. Um, and so then he basically instructed that other crimes need to happen that were at this caliber. And that's when people kind of took it and did their own things. The The concept of the Tate murderers being as gruesome as they were, he claims, was never his idea. Um, this can all be found in a new book that will be coming out. This uh, interviewer had uh, actually spoken with Manson just a little bit before his death. So the book is Hippie Cult Leader, The Last Words of Charles Manson. Um, the author for this, uh, who is uh, also going to be producing a... Um, upcoming film called Manson, the women, which will be taking a closer to look at, uh, the ladies of Manson and the things that they were involved in and how they reacted to with Manson. Um, he says his name is, uh, James Buddy Day, um, which is kind of weird bringing in another day. Well, it is another day. This. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's weird. That's a tie in. Yeah. The whole, day. the whole Doris Day thing. And yeah. Yeah. The and so, uh, intended victim and all that. There's a quote from Manson in here. Um, I didn't have nothing to do with killing those people, uh, which I love is after all those years in prison and talking to all these different self-help people and stuff like that, he still couldn't use proper English. Uh, yeah, but here's the interesting thing. That's a double negative. Yeah. Uh, which means that I did do it. Okay. I didn't even notice that. He didn't intend for a grammar nerd to be like, yeah. hey, 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 confession. Uh, uh, Charlie, I see you. I um, see you, boo. That means opposite day doesn't work on him. They did this over the phone, which was the other thing I found weird. He didn't actually go in and speak with Manson in person. Well, some some prisoners, when I've when I've heard, of, especially like some of them serial killers, especially, uh, will do this weird manipulative thing where they'll like say that they want the interviewer to come talk to them, and then at the last minute they'll go, "No, I don't want to," and like they just like to play this like cat and mouse power mm-hmm. game. So maybe that's why it was easier to do it over the phone than to go see him in person. Yeah, um, because maybe he just liked to. He might have pulled a thing like that where it's like, no, I'm not going to talk to you after all. He went on to say that they knew I didn't have anything to do with it. Um, the There's those who underlying story people don't know, uh, says Day. And he basically claims that with the amount of people that were at the ranch, the amount of people that were involved with Manzin between the fact that he also had gotten a biker gang to start hanging out with them. Uh, that there are just too many accounts of this story for us to know what truly happened. Yeah, there were about 100 yeah. to total Manson family members in total. So Let's also throw in how good his manipula- manipulation skills are. Uh, bikers, especially back in those days, didn't really hang out with what would be deemed as hippies. So the fact that they were kind of brought together with this one common interest, really interesting to think about. Well, that's kind of something that Day also covers because he talks about the fact that um, Charles Tex Watson uh, would actually was actually a drug dealer and would get drugs for the bikers and stuff like that to keep them complacent. And that's how this all led to Manson shooting the other drug dealers. The bikers said the drugs weren't any good and wanted their money back, and the guy wouldn't give his money back. Um, now, this has a weird connection back to the bayonet that uh, one of the things that 
had happened, one of the first things that happened before the Tate stuff was uh, actually someone using a revolutionary scaver to attack someone hmm. and slice at them. So it seems like they just liked old-timey weapons. <laughs> well, they did, and plus it was a film set. It had been a film set that had been used to shoot westerns. Um, so it could be that these things were just maybe still laying around from film crews and stuff like that, that they just like, all right, here, this is pointy. <laughs> Go Day, nuts. <laughs> Day goes on to quote saying, Manson said, now we got to fend for ourselves because the Black Panthers are going to kill us. At that point, Manson has two problems. First, he's worried that the Black Panthers will take revenge for the drug dealer he believes he's murdered. And second is that anyone in the group can rat him out. So he comes up with a strategy of saying, if everyone's willing to commit these violent acts, it will bond us together, and no one can kill uh, can tell on on, sorry, can tell on anyone. Which so is- that's more of the manipulation and what Manson explains as how he had nothing to do with the other ones, just said do more violent stuff, and left it at that. Which is an interesting alibi. <laughs> I couldn't have committed these murders because I told other people to do some shit. Okay, okay. So your your alibi for committing a murder is that like to it was to cover up for shooting somebody, but make bigger crimes to cover up for the little one that I did. It's like one of those terrible after school specials, like against lying, where someone tells just a little white lie and they have to tell a bigger lie and then a bigger lie and then a bigger lie to... And then somebody gets stabbed in the butt three, 16 times. And, and somebody gets stabbed, stabbed in, in the, the butt. butt. And that's how... It's so fun in games until someone gets stabbed in the ass 16 times. So, and what's weird about the, the day stuff is he's explaining that he thought that the drug dealer he had shot was part of the Black Panthers and therefore they were coming after him and that's why they had to do these other crimes so that the cops would get involved and they would believe it was black people. But he never actually directly explains it as a race war when with talking with day that's, more yeah, that's that he was just scared of the black panthers who had actually nothing to do with anything yeah, it had nothing to do with any of it and it just kind of seemed all imagined just by him by the way i'm afraid of the black panthers yeah and i don't know how that was relevant but i right? am <laughs> yeah, day's book is supposed to go way more into detail about it um but at the end he pretty much at the end of the article he pretty much explains that he didn't believe it uh, uh manson's bullshit <laughs> well yeah like, i mean he saw thing- that there could be certain things in it that were definitely truth but he didn't believe it at the end of the day. i mean for sure if it was one of those things where it's like you know this person is already really good at manipulating people it's like you kind of have to take what they say with a grain of salt to be honest and, and that's all i have to bring to this that's all you have to, <laughs> so we, you talked about there's a, a film coming out a, a documentary called manson and the women so there's already a film out right now as everybody knows the uh quentin tarantino's film once upon a time in hollywood um, by famed director and foot fetishist. There's about as much feet in this film as you would expect. <laughs> There's a lot. I was about to ask about There's that a well. lot. There's a lot of feet. I will say that. None uh, of them are Uma Thurman's feet. No, they're not. But there's a lot of women's feet in this. On uh, average, two per person. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's no. There's no. Uh, it's not like Grindhouse where there's nobody with a with a machine gun foot. So. Which wasn't his, which is weird. That is weird. You would think that. They would have gotten together on that somehow a little but, bit better. Like, no, no, no. I get the foot gun. I get the foot gun. <laughs> I, the foot I gun. want the foot gun. I want the foot gun. So there's an interesting the spin on in the movie on the, the Tate murders especially. Um, it's a kind of revisionist history. So it's in the same universe basically as Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. The whole, like, if I was God, this is how things would play out. Quentin Tarantino cinematic universe. Which makes this better. Watch, watch out, Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> we coming for you. It's uh, the murders basically being foiled by Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's fictional characters who happen to be living in the house next door to Sharon Tate. Um, it's it's a romp and a half, I'll tell you that. The first part of the movie and the second part of the movie kind of feel like two different movies. Um, the, fi- the killers show up as planned, but instead they end up at the wrong house or they end up going to DiCaprio's house instead because he chases them off initially and turns them away. And then they are just in a wacky what if scene or really quickly and bloodily dispatched by our drunken and high protagonists. I mean, this is basically a what if, if, you know, they had walked into the wrong house and Brad Pitt high on acid with a murder dog just owns the (laughs) shit out of them. And one's even dispatched by way of flamethrower. Not kidding. Should have spoiled or alerted that, but the movie's been out for a week. So fuck you. So it's true. Uh, flamethrowers are a thing. 
Flamethrowers are a thing. Well, in 2019, they're more of a thing now. Elon Musk is selling them. That's true. He did say he would supply people going to Area 51 with his flamethrowers. Just throwing that out there. Just throwing that way out there. Hey, Elon. So far that we can't pick it up again because it's too far away and we don't want to get up. Hey, Elon. <laughs> Elon, hit your, hit your girl back with a flamethrower. Come on. I would love a flamethrower. <laughs> Come on now. We know he's listening. Uh, is there any other movies that kind of interpret, or not interpret, I guess, that have like an interpretation of manson there are a few yeah there's a few um i know that there's there the movie has pretty positive uh feedback as of right now um it's got a pretty high rating on rotten tomatoes and the critics are are really liking it with the exception of a a few reviews that i've read um the one that i did read which was kind of interesting was that bruce lee's daughter kind of came out and was a little pissed off about the way her dad is uh portrayed in the film because he kind of portrays bruce lee as kind of a blowhard just kind of talks a bunch of shit and like is kind of an ass. But it's a different universe. It's, yeah, it's fiction. I mean, so. but that is still this person's parent. I guess. So you I know, know Polanski's wife was pissed off about the movie. Well, she has reasons to be other reasons to be pissed off at him. Uh, well, no, she's pissed off in his favor. Oh, in his favor. Yeah, like she's standing up for him, saying that you know this movie's kind of rough on him, and that uh, they should have like talked to them about it. Well, they didn't. Yeah, that's the, that is a that is a thing. Um, I'm no fan of his by any means, but uh, he was not even interviewed, and nobody even asked him any questions. I like Chinatown. That's about it. <laughs> but I mean, I also kind of think that that was done on purpose because Tarantino wanted it to be in his universe, and right. if he had done some more interviews like that, it would have been too much like you know our actual universe. And that's on, what he was trying to avoid, right? And honestly, like, okay, spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't even in the movie all that much and he really hardly had any lines. So I don't really know what she's upset about. Um, this actually, uh, when I remember reading the article, the movie wasn't even out yet. Okay. So I don't think she had seen it at all. I think she's just, just pissed off. Just mad that, that he was in it. in it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Cause I was like, he's not even really in it all that much. He's in it a few scenes at the beginning and then you really see him again. And I know that one of her big gripes was the fact that he's basically blacklisted from Hollywood yet they can put they can talk about him in movies. Well, because it's not... Does she not know how, like, it's a two separate people thing? Like, you can mention his name, but you don't... Ha- he doesn't have to be him in the movie. She's getting triggered. She's, yeah. I can't. I can't with this woman already. Already. Getting triggered. <laughs> so I think that takes about all the time we have for this episode. Again, we are The Spooky Show, hosted by the Ghoul Babes. Please subscribe if you like us. Yep, uh, Lauren's got some subscribe. info for you. <laughs> Throw money at us on our Patreon so we can make this a regular thing. And visit us on our website at thisspookyshow.wixsite.com slash thisspookyshow. Again, it's not the spooky show. It's this spooky show. There you can find links to our Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr pages. So our next episode is going to be two weeks from now where we'll discuss uh, what scares you, fears, and scary stories to tell in the dark. Stay spooky, friends.